0: How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. welcome welcome ladies and gentlemen welcome to this episode of pregnancy and alcohol the surprising reality my name is kurt lewis your friendly neighborhood podcaster and today we're chatting about fasd in an early childhood setting early childhood education setting i should say i'm joined by not one amazing guest i'm joined by two very amazing guests first guest on the mic sheet is dr kate highfield From the Early Childhood Australia. This is the peak body representing early childhood educators in Australia. And I'm also joined by Christine Brooks, a member of the board of NoFASD Australia and a former teacher. And you might recognize her voice because she's been on this podcast before. Welcome, guys. How are you guys going?
1: Great. Hi, Kurt.
2: Good. Hi, Christine. It's so great to be chatting with you. It's fabulous and lovely to
1: see you, Kurt. (laughs) Good to see you, Kate
0: before we launch into it I just want to maybe clarify for the listeners' sake I was wondering if you Kate if you could just tell us a bit about early childhood Australia just tell what it does really
2: as an organization mm. happy to do that thanks you yes. so So friends, I used to be an academic, I used to work in teacher education, but I've come to ECA in a different role. And my role at ECA is as general manager, professional learning and research translation. So we look at the research on a range of topics and then try and translate that in a way that really works for educators. ECA as a group, is a peak body, as Kurt said in his introduction, and we aim to help every young child to thrive and learn. Um, that's our core goal, our, our vision, as it were, to help every young child to thrive and learn. And that means the way we do that is by helping our services and educators in particular to be high-quality services. Um, it's a really fundamental skill. Now, I could talk through our five strategic priorities, but I, I won't at the moment other than to say, as well as our work in advocacy, we're a membership-based organisation. We support our members with branches in every state and territory. And we create and share a lot of professional learning, uh, whether those be live events or online learning modules or print publications. Um, We do a lot of professional learning. We make sure that everything we do is evidence-based and has been through rigorous review processes so that we're really making sure we're hitting the market. We've also got an incredible comms team who help get these messages out, and so it's a, a real honour to work with our members and our branches and educators around Australia to help target their needs.
0: Yeah, well, you do guys do a great job, honestly, in my opinion. Just to clarify for some of my listeners, that early childhood kind of period is between like five and below. Am I well, is I right?
2: Actually, we use the international de- definition of early mm. childhood, which is from, from birth, and in fact, many people say it's from gestation, so before birth, mm. right through to the age of eight, so from birth to eight years.
0: I was wondering as well, in, nowadays, we're seeing a lot of focus on using language, especially if when we're being like inclusive and respectful, and that, that's really important. And I was wondering, is does language play in have an important place when discussing stuff in an early childhood setting? You say when we're is language important when discussing FASD in an early childhood setting? Yeah, do you want to answer that one, Kate? I, I think you you seem very keen.
2: I was going to pass to Christine on that one.
0: <laughs> oh, you look like you were pointing at you for a sec. No, it's uh, no, <laughs> I was
2: pointing at Christine. I'm so happy to start. Language is our entry point, isn't it? You can open doors with language or you can close doors with language, whether that's when you're talking to educators, and we do use the phrase educators because we're we're working in education and care services. We as a sector feel that language is so important. It's language that includes people in, that creates partnerships with families, with children and with allied health services. You know, and we really see language as an entryway in and so careful language use is So important. Christine, you've worked in this space. Jump on in, my friend.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more with you, Kate. I think that it's more powerful. I mean, we express ourselves with our body language, our facial expressions in many, many ways, but there's nothing as powerful as words. And it's exactly what Kate said, you know, they can build you up or they can ruin your life, just a matter of words in a very quick time. Using respectful language when talking to parents is essential, essential, particularly in such a sensitive areas you're discussing their child. But also, when you're talking to the child, and I'm thinking in terms more of my the children that I've worked with, which are a little bit older, and particularly the ones who have had FASD, and I'm needing to explain why their behaviour is why it is, just to ease that sort of burden of I can't do anything right. And the language that I use around that is essential, particularly in making sure I never use words like damaged or, you know, there's something wrong with you. I talk about them their brain not working the way other people's brains work. I talk about the fact that their mothers drank alcohol why they were growing inside them but they didn't know that it was wrong for them, that they still loved them and that it was something they wouldn't have done. So it's all about wording things very, very carefully so that you are showing respect but at the same time informing. So we need to use the, the language in a way that it's going to inform the person, the child or the parent, being very sensitive to how they would be taking it all in and being clear about the exact words that we use.
2: And Sorry to butt in there, Christine, but it's a really interesting piece, isn't it, that often we think we are talking adult to adult, but there are so frequently little ears listening and so framing that language in a way that's respectful but also honouring the child. So if you're having a confidential conversation about a child, make sure that child can't hear. And I think that's particularly hard in the diagnosis pathway. You know, if a parent and child is in a room Uh, During a diagnosis session, it's really hard to navigate and Mm -hmm. communicate clearly so that the parent understands, but also recognizing that so often children can hear and misinterpret. I love that idea of we have to be honest and informative. We don't want to say things like there's something wrong with your brain. You know, our brains are all wired differently. Mm -hmm. Yours is wired in a particular way. I think that honesty
1: piece is so vital, isn't it? Yes, I agree. I think we have to be careful about oversharing sometimes, Mm. well, as you said, Kate, in front of the child particularly. But also, I've always made a point as a primary school teacher to end all these conversations on a positive and look at the strengths, focus on the strengths, and not let that parent walk away with that horrible feeling of, you know, this is the end of the world type of You know, that there's a lot of things can be done. There's a lot of hope and you've got a beautiful child and we're just going to do our best as a team to support you. And I think those are all words that we know, but sometimes we lose that sense of how the other person might be feeling. So it's really important. That respect is huge.
2: It is absolutely huge. We in early childhood, so often, you know, if you think about the sector being educators, so family day carers, preschool teachers, long daycare teachers and educators. We are almost all think about this idea of partnerships. It's a mm-hmm. it's a partnership with the whole family. And so when we're using language, that language needs to be not from a deficit perspective. We're not saying something is wrong, mm-hmm. but we're building opportunities. Yes. But I, I think there's another challenge, and I recognise in the interviews we've done with teachers and experts around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, is there some real challenges with having honest conversations? You know, if you've noticed that something's not quite right developmentally as a teacher, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint what that might be or hard to begin those challenging conversations. And so I want to say when we think about language, sometimes it's important to practice our language, to use a wise colleague, to listen to what you're saying, to double check that you're not fending or breaking that partnership, but in fact, that you're building those partnerships, that we're being honest, communicating clearly, and not letting language be a barrier in the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In that sort of giving the talking of the language is important, and handing that language on to the child so the child, as they grow older, they can also have the right words to, so they're not suffering shame or guilt or, you know, feeling inadequate. If they've got the right words to say, and I know our foster daughter has a lot of trouble with processing. So we need to wait that time in between what we've said and, you know, the answer. And So we've taught her now, she just says, just a minute, I'm thinking. And once she says that, people ease off and they're not sort of waiting and saying, come on, I've already asked you. And she's got all these little strategies, which she's put into place and work really well just to ease a bit of the pressure. But that's her language that she uses now to help her get through situations. So we can use language in so many different areas, and I think Kate and I probably covered most of them now, but to really support the child the parent and the child as they're moving forward so that they take control and empowering them.
0: Honestly, I think that's great advice right there. Thank you, Christine. So how is FASD relevant in an early childhood education setting? Is it too early for FASD symptoms to be recognised? Christine, I believe uh, you've got something to say. <laughs>
1: I don't think so. I think it's a lot harder to recognise these symptoms. And obviously the younger you're going to say, is this developmental? Is this just the child, you know, mm. doing going through different stages? And it's without a doubt far harder to recognise. Sometimes you know the history and you can start putting things together. So that sort of supports your thoughts and where you're going. But I think it's when you see consistent behaviour that mm. is not appropriate, age-appropriate, things uh, with, with any issue, with any concern, bells start ringing when you say this child's been doing this for too long it's not improving I'm trying different strategies it's not the things aren't working I need to go a little bit further and find out exactly what the problem could be so you look for the signs you watch them this is where and Kate will know much more about this than I do but that observation and recording information I've always done that I think you just go back on those notes and you think this has been going on for longer than I realized and then you start starting to get the professionals in
2: It's a big piece, isn't it? I think there's a couple of components to that question. Firstly, we know that children will often exhibit different developmental trajectories. So just if you think of a classroom of typically developing children some will learn to share at a different age to others some will learn to hold a fork at a different age to others there is a, a developmental trajectory or a, a roadway in in many ways but some people travel down that roadway faster than others and our job as educators is to provide a space where everyone is included you know we're not trying to isolate or remove a child. In fact, we want to provide strategies in place to include. If you haven't read Cathy uh, Colligan's book on inclusive education in the early years, my friends, you need to go and read that book. It is incredible and it reminds us of that. But sometimes I think FASD is hard to identify, particularly just through observations, because there is a really significant crossover of FASD with other spectrum-based disorders. And that's quite normal. These are called spectrum-based disorders because there is a spectrum of characteristics. I think there is a risk in early childhood that we jump to the diagnosis, but as a teacher, as an educator in early childhood, I need to remember that it is not my job to diagnose. It's my job to raise a flag, to make good observations and then to share that so that the parent can seek additional advice from a a medical practitioner who has that information. We do, however, see and we know of some great services who are assisting in earlier diagnosis because when we're talking about inclusive practice, sometimes that means obtaining funding to get additional supports in place, which is where sometimes having a diagnosis is really quite helpful. So when we're thinking about inclusion in the early years, we really want to see support mechanisms put in place from the earliest age possible, which means early identification is really key. So what we're seeing in some of these great services is parents having incredibly honest conversations at enrolment. So one of the services I'm aware of actually asks parents as a child is enrolled, you know, how your pregnancy was. Did you have any concerns in pregnancy? Did you have any drug or alcohol habits that we should be aware of? What is your situation at home? And it's not just one question targeting fetal alcohol spectrum disorder at all and certainly not designed to create a stigma, but it opens up an opportunity to have a conversation And it was interesting in talking to the director of that service, uh, often people don't fill that section of the form in, but at least we're starting that conversation. Or sometimes people will say, why is this on the form? It gives you that opportunity to start to say, well, actually, the way we are in utero can affect our life in an ongoing way. So it's a complex area, but we want to seek inclusive practice. And sometimes that means an early diagnosis is really beneficial.
0: And it's, I imagine it's very difficult, especially FASD, since it's got a very high comorbidity with lots of other neurodisabilities, if you don't mind me saying. And it must be very, very hard in that kind of setting as well to avoid. avoid you need to be, I, mean, I completely agree about the inclusion part, but it must be hard to get around that stigma part.
1: Kate, we say this over and over, and you just said it then, that the importance of um, educators and not professional uh, and medical experts and they cannot start assuming something. They can just record what they've seen. They've certainly got the knowledge that they can sort of make other people aware of what they're concerned about. But I would never, ever suggest to a parent that maybe your child's got FASD. I would suggest you perhaps seek further help. And we look at it and there's so many support areas for that. But I think that that whole area has got to be treated by people more than just one person. You need to be seeing the group. You need to be seeing people who are more experienced and dealing with it that way. It's too sensitive. Mm. I think
2: we, we know now that so many pregnancies are unplanned. And so many people actually do drink for five, six, three weeks until they find out that they're pregnant. It is not an uncommon practice But as a society, this is still a stigmatised piece. And so educators are aware and probably worried about that because there's this stigma associated. Mm -hmm. And it's different in an early childhood education and care setting because you have an ongoing partnership with these families, with these children. So you, you can't jump to that diagnosis or or break the relationship in any way because you still need to see that family tomorrow. Mm. They still need to trust you with their gorgeous poppet tomorrow. In a medical and clinical setting, it is incredibly different because you see that client once and then you don't have to see them again or you might see them once every couple of years or every six months. I think that relational piece in early childhood is an added complexity. It's a benefit because you have this sustained observation of a child, but it certainly something that makes life complex as we look at that diagnosis pathway.
0: 100%. You guys have been both working on early childhood identification guide for FASD. It's meant to be a guide for the early childhood educators. What is the goal of developing this kind of guide?
2: So we were really excited to be invited to write this guide. This is supported by the Department of Health, and it's a guide that is written in plain English so that everyone can understand it. It gives a little bit more information about what FASD is, and it particularly gives them scenarios and complexities around the diagnosis pathway and helps educators better understand what it is and what's out there. As a teacher, I know a whole heap about autism spectrum disorder. I know a lot about oppositional defiance disorder, but FASD is something that we haven't addressed in the same way. So we're really trying to provide some information for educators so they're better informed. Because as Maya Angelou says, when we know better, we can do better. It's about that first piece of the puzzle of getting more information out there. My goal in putting this out there is to create better understanding and increase empathy so that we don't rush to the diagnosis, but in fact, engage in inclusive practice. So it's got some strategies of how to manage some good scenarios, including brilliant video vignettes that we're currently filming. So I'm going to say they're brilliant of experts (laughs) talking about this and actors acting out scenarios. We're also really privileged to be able to share stories from teachers, teachers where they thought they did this really well, and teachers where they thought they could improve in their practice. So there's some real life scenarios performed by actors so that it's all completely anonymous and respectful, and some really heart rendering stories from parents carers and even from some children with FASD. So really exciting mix in this whole book with this lovely print and online component.
1: It really is exciting. It's just so good to have something out there that you can refer to. I mean, I think of all those years I was teaching and I really didn't have a clue about how the problems that I would be researching, whereas here's a really informative book that's not only supporting all the educators with evidence-based information and all the things Kate just talked about. It's just more than so much more than a book, but also it's building FASD awareness. I mean, just right across the community, it's just opening eyes everywhere. And I think we've got so far to go to develop that FASD awareness. This is part of the step forward. And those first five years are the most Crucial. I think that the early child educators are the most important educators. When that brain, that little brain is at its most flexible, this is the time where we need to have the information that's going to support. And this is just one area that we're probably not as educated about. As Kate was saying, we all know about autism now. We know about so many of the other areas that we've you know, worried about over the years. This is an area that's been neglected. And so now at last, we're going to provide educators with really, really sound material that they can refer to easily. It's written in their language and it's got just so many different supports.
2: Yeah. One of the things I love, all ECA products go through reviews. And one of the things I'm excited about with this product is even though there's been some challenges around language to use and ways we communicate things, everyone has agreed that there's a need for this book. Uh There's a hole in our training where we don't necessarily have enough time to understand these different spectrum-based disorders, and not only do we not understand all of the different spectrums, but we also don't know how to support and how to be inclusive. So hopefully we're getting to that space.
0: That, that honestly sounds amazing. I Yeah, I hope this is able to fill that gap. Just uh, if there's one piece of important advice you could impart onto an early childhood educator who has a child in their care who has been diagnosed with FASD, what would you give? One piece of important advice would you give that person?
2: I'm going to jump in with every child is capable and confident. Every child has abilities that we can help build and every child is at a stage where regardless of where they are on on any of these spectrums where we as educators can change their lives so i really want to focus as my last piece of advice on look at the child as capable and confident Mm. look at the child as a learner and as a grower we might have to find ways to do that learning in multiple pathways we might have to practice things different ways at different times but i think take away the deficit it's not a label there's an amazing person in there that we can enable to
1: thrive and learn. And I'd just like to add as well as, you know, supporting the child as well as Kate said, the parents, the family, the people that are there, they need huge support around this. It's one thing to be FASD aware. It's another thing to really understand it. It's a very complex disorder, as all these brain-based disorders are. And having a real understanding about that interaction with that child helps you build all those strengths that we've just mentioned. But the family need a lot of support. Just be there as that person that you're going to help them move forward.
2: I love that idea, Christine. It sparked something in me. You know, when we're thinking about cultural awareness, we've gone from being aware of the cultures and particularly aware of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues into being culturally safe. And maybe that's the step we're doing here is we're starting this journey. So it's not just about awareness, but it's now about support. It's yeah. about
1: providing that safe environment for the whole family. Yes, yes. And, and when you gain that understanding, that follows. Absolutely.
0: Well, honestly, guys, I wanted to thank you both, Christine, Kate. Thank you for coming on to the program and chatting with me about this topic.
1: Thanks, Kurt.
0: Right.
1: Thanks, Kurt. And thank you, Kate.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of our little podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.